Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Nathan, Eustan, and Alexa. International cooperation forms one essential part of Ukrainian sovereignty and security, and the country's commitment to UN peacekeeping operations has helped to develop such essential international ties. This week, we explore Ukraine's historical and current role as a member of the United Nations and their contributions to global peacekeeping. This and more on Zakhtadonyi Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So with countries like Ukraine, who are currently going through domestic issues uh, with the war in Donbass, as well as uh, international uh, problems like the annexation of Crimea and Russian aggression along the borders, it's important that countries like this have a platform through which they can push for you know international change within the international community. And one of the key organizations when it comes to this is the United Nations. So today we thought we would have a look at Ukraine, how they've contributed to the United Nations, why they contribute. Uh, we'll also specifically be focusing on Ukraine's peacekeeping operations internationally and how they have worked to try and keep peace and security abroad. So Ukraine has been an active contributor to the United Nations peacekeeping operations abroad since 1992. Now, despite the war that is currently going on, it has still maintained its contributions to these peacekeeping operations. So as of January 2021, the country actually contributes 305 personnel to peacekeeping operations abroad. Now, this includes 28 police, 13 military experts to the United Nations Middle Eastern Mission, 246 troops, and 18 staff officers. Now, when comparing it to other countries, uh, the top contributors when it comes to personnel, uh, number one is Bangladesh, who contributes 6,711 total personnel, Rwanda, who contributes 6,378 personnel, and Ethiopia, who contribute 6,297 total personnel. So when I was first researching this, I thought, okay, well, where are the world's superpowers, though? And so in doing uh, digging deeper and doing some research, I discovered that the world superpowers don't fall into the highest categories when it comes to personnel. Rather, they fall into the top of the categories when it comes to funding. So when it comes to the funding of uh, the United Nations peacekeeping from 2020 to 2021, number one was the United States, who currently pays for almost 28% of the United Nations peacekeeping uh, budget. Then uh, number two is China at 15%, so quite a significant drop down there in terms of percentage. And I'll go through the top 10. Uh, next is Japan with 8.5%, Germany with 6.09%, the United Kingdom with 5.8%, France with 5.6%, Italy with 3.3%, the Russian Federation with 3.04%, uh, Canada with 2.7%, and then the Republic of Korea comes in 10th with 2.26%. So while the United States uh, is the top funder with that 28% of the budget being paid for by the US, it only contributes 30 personnel, even though, but it makes up for that with their significant funding. Now, being an Australian uh, based show, I was wondering uh, where Australia is in all of this. So currently, Australia actually gives close to the same personnel as the US, where they give 31 total personnel, which includes just it's only four, uh, 14 experts to the Middle Eastern mission and 17 staff members. So we don't give any police or any um, troops to that. 
So I have a question for you guys. What percentage of the budget do you think is paid for by Australia? And the second one will be what percentage do you think of the budget is paid for by Ukraina in comparison to the others? So what do you think? I'd say Australia would be close to the top 10, just of mm-hmm. considering that Australia so, is quite a high income country. And then Ukraine, I feel like we contribute more in manpower than paying. So if the Korea is at the bottom is number 10 with 2.26%, what do you think Australia's percentage would be? Uh, I was thinking that it'd be around 1%, maybe 1.5. And then uh, mm-hmm. I assume for Ukraine, it'd be less than 0.5 really, mainly because of what Alexis said. Okay, so um, Australia contributes 2.21% of the UN's peacekeeping budget. So it's actually pretty close to Korea. So we're close to the top 10, which is why we only um, contribute the, you know, the 31 total number of troops. Ukraine, on the other hand, contributes around 0.01% of uh, payments towards the budget. So that's why they have that larger um, con- contribution when it comes to personnel. Now, 305 personnel is um, it's a decent amount, but when you consider uh, you know countries like Bangladesh and Rwanda, we're not up into the thousands yet. But I thought that Ukraine should be praised for still wanting to contribute troops and still wanting to contribute personnel, despite the fact that they're going um, through that ongoing war and they're not pulling out all of their uh, resources just to go, um, just to try and fight the war. Now, Noel Alexi, you were mentioning that they pulled out um, some of their uh, air force capabilities from the UN when they, um, when the war first started. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so Ukraine's numbers for UN missions has fluctuated. So Ukraine's highest ever commitment for a UN mission was 1,303 soldiers which was part of the UN mission to Yugoslavia. However, Ukraine also contributed 1,690 soldiers as part of the NATO-led mission to Iraq. So, you know, the numbers do fluctuate per mission, but what Ukraine is most known for currently in the UN is for donating part of its helicopter force to the United Nations mission in the Congo, and that is to fight rebel groups who are trying to destabilize the Democratic Republic of the Congo even further than it already is. And so when the war mm. started in Donbass, obviously Ukraine had to, you know, pull everything that it had to stem the invasion. And so part of that involved disengaging um, certain elements of the army temporarily from UN peacekeeping missions. And obviously, the Air Force played quite an active role in 2014 and early 2015. And so they were needed at the front more than they were needed in the UN from Ukraine's perspective, which I think is quite fair. Yeah. Do you guys think it's a good idea that Ukraine still maintains that uh, peacekeeping um, operation despite the fact they're going through the war? Yes, I think it is important. Um, as we'll cover a bit later, um, having the contribution to the UN also gives uh, Ukraine a better voice in the international community. And I think being a proper player when it comes to being uh, a good international citizen as a country, I think all those things help Ukraine's position and you know, continue supporting the argument that Ukraine, that they want to be a democratic and, you know, I guess, positive contributor to the global economy, global issues, and obviously global peacekeeping. So, Andre, would you like to uh, tell us more about uh, the history of uh, Ukraine as a member of the United Nations? Yeah, sure. So, um, 
to many, it might be surprising that Ukraine was actually one of the founding members of the United Nations in 1945. Uh, though back then, it would have been the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Yeah, I was actually, I watched a video about that cause since I've been doing all the UN research, naturally YouTube is like, oh, want to see something about why the uh, why Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council, and it was um, yeah, kind of it was a compromise that kind of got Ukraine and Belarus and Russia um, seats. Yeah, because he wanted to he wanted to counterbalance the Western countries being included in the UN, and so yeah, right uh, to qualify he. Um, Stalin had to create a Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Ukraine and Belarus and also a Ministry of Defense. And I know Kulaba was saying during the lead up to the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence, and there was like a United Nations anniversary that year as well. Uh, he mm -hmm. said that Ukraine's foreign ministry of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic had 37 staff members, and that was including cleaners. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so it was a rubber <laughs> rubber stamp institution, but it was enough to for the, it to qualify under the UN rules. With the delegation of Ukraine, then it took part in the San Francisco Conference and had made a significant contribution to the development of the Charter of the United Nations, and in particular in coordinating the process of preparation of the preamble and the purposes and principles of the United Nations. So. After its independence uh, in 1991, Ukraine declared its first military and civilian resources to the UN in 1994. And in 1997, Ukraine became the ninth member state out of 70 troop contributing states who signed with the United Nations the Memorandum of Understanding concerning its contributions to the UN standby arrangements. Also, Ukraine has uh, two battalions with other nations, one with Poland and another with Belgium, Luxembourg and Romania. And both of these battalions have served in the operation of the international force in Kosovo. Since being part of the UN, more than 34,000 Ukrainian troops have participated in 20 UN operations and including non-UN operations, this number raises to 42,000. Since Ukraine's independence, only 30 Ukrainians have lost their lives uh, under the UN flag, with only half of them being from the UN Protection Force in the former Yugoslavia. Ukraine is also uh, a security provider and consumer, as it hosts two OSCE missions, one monitoring the Minsk agreements and the other uh, the Ukrainian-Russian border and two EU missions, which concern the Moldovan border with Transnistria. Yeah, that's a whole other kettle of worms that we can look into in future, maybe. Yeah, that was pretty interesting when I saw that. I was like, huh, there's another area we can look into. So with this brief history, what has Ukraine uh, participated in and its initiatives that it's partaken in? So I think, um, as, as you're saying, Andrei, there's been obviously a very long-standing presence of Ukraine in one form or another in the UN Security Council. Um, and uh, over the periods, I think there's five periods historically, um, two of them pre-independence and then two after independence uh, in 2001, 2000, 2001 and 2016, 2017, where uh, Ukraine was a member of um, the Security Council. And 
to give a comparison, I mean, Australia being part of the Security Council has been pretty limited as as, as an example as well. So the considering, I guess, uh, the stature of the country, considering its pre-independence and post-independence uh, phases, the fact that it's... Uh, that Ukraine has been a seat at the table for the Security Council five times since the inception of the UN is quite unique. And equally, um, Secretary Generals have paid significant visits to Ukraine. There's been nine visits to Ukraine uh, from 1962 through to 2017. So it's a consistent thing that's happened. Um, and as we've discussed generally, I think Ukraine has, um, despite being in a serious conflict with the Russian Federation, has still um, focused on its United Nations activities um, and seen them as an important contribution they make um, in terms of their just general, I guess, contribution to the global community, but also in terms of uh, the, the strategies of its foreign policy in general. Since 1992, um, as we sort of mentioned, there's been a lot of contribution of active personnel and equipment. Um, that's been its primary focus um, and has even been focused, uh, I guess, has even, as we've talked about recently, um, been contributing to things like uh, the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Uh, but having this presence, um, I guess, on the UN Security Council, uh, particularly the last presence, which was in 2016-17, was actually uh, very advantageous for Ukraine in itself as well because um, it allowed Ukraine to inform the international community and keep the council up to date about um, all of the situations where there was um, aggression from Russia in terms of uh, occupied Crimea and the eastern Ukraine borders. Um, and as a result of that ongoing, I guess, interface, that, that voice and seat at the table that Ukraine has had due to its work with the UN, um, there's been over 40 meetings around the issue of Russian aggression against Ukraine since 2014. So, I, again, as much as... Um, it's, we've, we can all be very proud as as diaspora Ukrainians or as ethnic Ukrainians of Ukraine's role in the UN. It's also been a very important part of Ukraine's ability to interface with other countries and, and have its voice heard when it needs to. Um, in addition to that, um, uh, there's also currently a UN human rights monitoring mission um, in Ukraine, um, and that monitors the human rights consequences um, of Russian aggression. So that's something that I guess the UN is doing for Ukraine as part of that relationship. And in framework of, I guess, in the framework of cooperation, the United Nations system has provided uh, assistance of more than 200 million US dollars to implement more than 300 projects um, in areas of human rights protection, social assistance, development of civil society, environmental protection, and nuclear energy. And so Ukraine has contributed to the betterment of a lot of those issues, not only within its region, but also um, globally in different areas, which I'm sure Alexa would like to tell us a little bit more about now. Yeah, so I thought we could dive into maybe two examples of the effect that Ukraine has been able to have as part of various UN peacekeeping forces. And so the first one I thought we could sort of dive into and explore is the town of Zhepa in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And Bosnia-Herzegovina was obviously one of the major conflict zones of the collapse of Yugoslavia and the whole wars for the various factions. And this was Ukraine's first foray into international affairs as an independent country. And as I mentioned earlier, they committed um, over 1,300 troops to the mission to restore peace and stability to Bosnia-Herzegovina. And one of the places that 
a detachment of Ukrainian troops were stationed into was the town of Japa. And whilst the name of Japa itself might not be famous, it's one of its neighboring towns is very famous worldwide due to a Serbian genocide against the Muslim population of Bosnia-Herzegovina that took place. And that is the town of Serbian. My apologies for the mispronunciation. And what I thought was quite interesting is that during the Bosnia-Herzegovina war, a detachment of 79 Ukrainian paratroopers were stationed in the town of Japa in July 1995. And they were able to save almost 9,000 civilians from being massacred by advancing Serbian forces and also protect them from Bosnian Muslim units that were also active in the area and attacking. And the way that this was done was that the Ukrainian soldiers obviously set up a perimeter around the village, which they were able to maintain, but also to protect the civilians as they were being evacuated is they would place one Ukrainian uh, peacekeeper prominently in the bus to ensure that the bus couldn't be attacked by the insurgents slash other forces operating in the area. And I think it's quite a testament to the professionalism of the Ukrainian troops is that 79 Ukrainian soldiers were able to stop this onslaught of Serbian forces whilst in the neighboring town of Serbian, which was guarded by a much larger battalion of Dutch troops, fell within hours. And obviously that led to the massacre of innocent Bosnian Muslims at the hands of the Serbs. So I think that's quite a testament to the professionalism and courage of these Ukrainian servicemen. What do you guys think? Uh, I think it's a good achievement that Ukraine was able to prevent any deaths during their operation. Um, In more recent times, Ukraine has played an active role in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, particularly in the provinces of North and South Kiwi. And um, this is where Ukraine contributes parts of its air force and particularly its MIL Mi-24 helicopters, which the UN utilizes as mobile attack platforms, as well as transporting humanitarian aid and rescuing slash transporting civilians out of the conflict zone. And in 2012, these Ukrainian helicopters were used by the UN to dislodge and destroy various rebel groups in the area, and they were able to do so without causing any losses to the United Nations forces that were active in the area, which I think is another very strong achievement. kind of shows... The um, again the skill of these Ukrainian pilots, and um, I know various Ukrainian journalists have said that Ukrainian pilots are not always more goha, but I think they know that these Soviet-built machines can take a bit more punishment than some of the Western-built technology, and I think they're more comfortable in maybe going into other situations where other nations might be more hesitant, and therefore make like these Ukrainian pilots able to help the UN a bit more effectively by getting into more treacherous territory, but therefore able to help more people at the same time. Yeah, and I also think it's very important that not just pilots, but the technology and their helicopters are also being used. Ukraine is one of the main provi- is an important provider of uh, MI-24 attack helicopters and the MI-8 uh, transport helicopters. So, I mean, whenever we're talking about defense and, you know, uh, supply of defense equipment, you always hear of, you know, Russia supplying defense equipment, the US supplying defense equipment. I mean, here in Australia, we're now getting the 
um, nuclear subs. So it seems to always be dominated by just a handful of countries. And I think it's good that a country like um, Ukraine is able to uh, contribute in in some way that is recognized internationally, like through the United Nations. Yeah, and this sort of brings us to a bit more of a personal story for me and Andre, in that um, one of our uh, two of our uncles were actually involved in a UN peacekeeping mission to Lebanon, and they were there in the early two thousands. And was always interesting listening to the stories, don't you reckon, Andre? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of funny stories that they told us, and how unusual. Like when when first hearing it, it was really unusual to hear all these stories for a first time from a peacekeeper really yeah so he like one of the stories they told was um like obviously they got downtime and so during their downtime they were allowed to travel wherever they wanted because they had un passports but they said when you cross the border for example from lebanon into israel to go to the beach you had to discard anything of arabic writing and then the same thing when you were coming back to the base in lebanon you had to discard all items that had hebrew on it because it was um part of the border crossing regulations so that was that was always like a weird one but probably and this is sort of a, an answer to your previous question as to why certain countries like bangladesh ethiopia have much higher troop contributions is bec- and like countries like italy for example have much lower troop contributions even though technically their armies are much more advanced than say ethiopia's is partly because of pay as how my uncle explained it because the UN pays a standard rate for troops and so for certain countries like Bangladesh, Fiji that contribute quite high numbers of troops um, it's because it's a way for their troops to get training overseas but at the same time an ability to earn a bit more money than they would be able to in their home country while um, he our uncle said that um, troops from Italy and France who were in Lebanon uh, as part of the peacekeeping mission for a lot of them, it was seen as a demotion or a punishment because they took a big pay cut. That kind of goes to something that I read about, um, like some of the rationales for contributing. And um, one of them was that, uh, you know, th- it is a source of revenue for individual service members as well. And there was um, an interesting fact was that the pilots um, actually receive a salary if they're working internationally for peacekeeping they actually receive a uh, salary during deployments that is five times the army average and ten times the country's average of income so working for these peacekeeping operations is lucrative for the country um, because it brings in revenue through their um their citizens yeah yeah, no uh, definitely and i think you know it's maybe part of the way that some of these countries are able to fund their not their defense forces but in a sense fund part of their other activities by being able to participate in global peace initiatives but at the same time able to finance other projects at home and i think this sort of brings us to the like the final question should ukraine a country at war with a major superpower still be contributing to United Nations peacekeeping efforts around the world when troops are needed on the front lines. Um, so I'll jump in first with a bit of um, information and I'll pass on to someone else. So there's, I read an article that talked about uh, five aspects, but I'll just talk about the first one, the political rationale for it. And it said that the um, in Ukrainian academic literature, peacekeeping is described as a means of strengthening European and international security increasing Ukraine's authority and demonstrating commitment to peace and developing economic ties with regions recovering from conflict. 
Peacekeeping contributions are believed to have helped Ukraine's 2000-2001 and 2016-2017 bids for a non-permanent Security Council seat. So um, if we're looking at it purely from the political perspective of international politics, it's important that Ukraine maintains this, this commitment because it shows that they are contributing to peace and that peace is one of their, peace and security is one of their uh, main priorities, regardless of their own domestic uh, circumstances. And that will help them, you know, to get uh, non-permanent mem- uh, membership to security councils, possibly even permanent membership to a security council, uh, to the security council one day. So it does strengthen those international ties and Ukraine's uh, international reputation when it comes to peacekeeping and security. Yeah, Nathan, and, and, and based on what Laksa and yourself have both said and, and what we've talked about earlier, there's obviously clear benefits politically and for you know, diplomatically for Ukraine, but also there's also a general um, a general perception of Ukraine that becomes important from this activity, just like we talked about with the Olympics, the idea of Ukraine uh, being, you know, getting a profile over the course of its independence because of its success in the Summer Olympics particularly. Um, and people actually identifying, okay, this is Ukraine, these are Ukrainians, you know, they're good at sport. I think the work that the good work that's done by uh, the UN peacekeepers from Ukraine obviously will, will impact on people's perception of Ukraine um, in terms of just how the relationships are of different cultures with Ukraine and obviously raises the profile of, you know, Ukrainian culture in, in, a, in, a, um, in a subtle way all around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seems that Ukraine's presence on the like the global stage is definitely starting to um, expand. Unfortunately, there are incidents like the impeachment of Donald Trump, which kind of put a bit of a stain on it in a negative light. Like I know personally, whenever I search for Ukraine, if it's on YouTube or if it's on something like that, you'll either get news stories from it or you'll get still things about the impeachment sometimes, which is unfortunate. But there is that um, sense that you know, we have to keep maintaining the peace and the security and the, the commitment that we have to these um, these UN charters, as well as, you know, maintaining Ukraine's uh, position internationally as a post-Soviet country that is, in the, that is interested in peace and economic ties, as opposed to what Russia's doing currently, where it's um, expanding its uh, military capacity um, for more aggressive forms of expansion. So, so I think we'd all really like to see Ukraine continue to invest in this very important area, and I think we can all be very proud of Ukraine's role on the, on the world stage when it comes to peacekeeping. In the news this week, Ukraine is planning on opening more border checkpoints along its western border with the EU. Three checkpoints are planned for the Ukrainian-Polish border and will be located in the Lviv and Volyn regions. Another crossing is planned near the tri-border point of Ukraine, Slovakia and Poland. However, this border point will most likely be a pedestrian crossing to start with due to it being located near various national parks on the EU side. UNESCO has released a report on the situation in occupied Crimea in the lead-up to the 212th session of the UNESCO Executive Board. The report criticizes the Russian occupation authorities for the systematic suppression of the Ukrainian and Crimean Tatar languages on the peninsula. It also highlights Russia's cultural appropriation of Crimean artifacts which are then exported to mainland Russia and exhibited there in an attempt to bolster Russian claims to the region. 
The report also criticizes Russian attempts to erase traces of the cultural presence of the Crimean Tatars on the peninsula, while turning their religion into a weapon against them. A former Deputy Prosecutor General of Ukraine, Mykola Holoshman, has announced on Ukrainian TV that former Ukrainian presidential candidate Vyacheslav Chernovil did not die as a result of a car crash as reported at the time. It was revealed that he was actually murdered by armed men after the accident. To date, the car crash theory remains the only accepted version of events, but mystery continues to surround it. The Orthodox Church of Ukraine has launched its own app. The app contains five sections, including a map of nearby churches, calendar of religious holidays and important events, church news, a list of prayers and a user profile. It also features an online chat function where the faithful can discuss spiritual life with a priest. The app was presented at the Kiev Orthodox Theological Academy. It is available on both Google Play and the Apple App Store. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UQLF Abroad content.